Before we get to today's show, I'd like to invite you to become a part of this show. If you have hiked the John Muir Trail, whether you section hiked it or through hiked it, or if you intend to hike it in the future, then give us a call, 818-925-0106, and please leave a voicemail telling us a little bit about your experience, a memory, a hardship, what you're looking forward to, or how it affected your life positively or even negatively. At the end of this season, I am hoping to collect these voice messages and edit them into an episode focused on the John Muir Trail. So if you would like to potentially have your voicemail appear on the show, call us up, 818-925-0106. Leave us your name, whether that is your real name or your trail name, where you are located, and give us your thoughts within three minutes about the John Muir Trail. Thank you ahead of time, and let's get to the show. Everybody. Welcome to episode 101 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today is the third of our four North Carolina episodes. We will be speaking to outdoorsman, entrepreneur, and founder of Appalachian Gear Company, John Gage. This is a great episode for you gearheads out there and a little different from a lot of past episodes. We will be discussing a lot about manufacturing, especially textiles. One of the things I always say is I don't want this show to just solely be focused on the outdoors. I want it to be a nice rounded place where you learn about the interest and pursuits of other people in the outdoor community. And this is one of those episodes that really goes in depth about a lot of topics we don't typically talk about. And if you think, oh, I'm not a person that's interested in manufacturing or mechanical things or textiles or gear give this episode a chance i think you are going to find it far more interesting than you think and it's a really great look into the mind of someone who helps develop the products that you use when you go outdoors so let's head back to fall of last year in that windy AT shelter in North Carolina where I sat down with John Gage to talk about his history in the outdoors, his history as a business person and entrepreneur, and the path that brought him to 100% alpaca clothing and why that's special and why that matters. So let's go now and talk to John Gage. I'm uh, John Gage, I guess from the highest level. I'm an outdoorsman and an entrepreneur. My whole career has been spent in the textile industries. The textile industry is is something I've been interested in for years and years. So those those three things really describe me. I'm an amateur hacker guitar player too. 
<laughs> so I'm good enough for myself to listen to, but nobody else. So you just hide away in a room alone yeah. and play guitar. And then when you hear a sound outside, you're like, oh shit, somebody's That's home. Right. And you turn, you go. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Still trying to figure out eruption after all these years. So something that I think is interesting about you, you mentioned two separate things, textile industry and the outdoors, which very different things, but for you, they overlap and they coincide. Is that something that came about later in life or did you kind of begin with an interest in both of those things and then find a way to bring them together? That's a great question because the textile industry and the outdoor industry for me weren't connected really until probably around 2000, 2002. And it's because like a lot of people, even though I'd been in the textile industry for years and I've been a backpacker and a camper for years and years, you think of gear as being rain jackets and backpacks and shoes, but you really don't think of much of your other components that you take with you as being gear. We're on the Appalachian Trail today. As we walked up, I was telling a story about getting hypothermia and that is the time when I realized that clothing is gear. Tell us that story, because I've heard it, but people listening don't know what you're talking about. My oldest son and I were hiking on the Appalachian Trail, backpacking. We were doing a section, and we were going to be gone for, I think, three weeks. We we were backpacking in a uh, front that had stalled over the Smokies. And so we backpacked for four days in cool, rainy weather. So we stayed wet the whole time. Temperature never got out of the 50s. It was July, but July and the Smokies can be rugged. That was before we really started wearing any animal fibers like merino wool. We were still pretty much wearing polyester and nylon. And so on the fourth day of being wet and cold, we stopped at a shelter. It was near Klingman's Dome, and it was my turn to filter the water. And nobody else was in the shelter but us. It was dusk. Sun was going down. I was getting the, my equipment out, and I noticed my son was in the shelter, and uh, he was sitting straight up, but he was asleep. And so I didn't think anything of it. And how old is he around about this time? 12, 13. Okay, so relatively young. Yeah. So enough that when you realize something's wrong, you're going to be freaked out. Yeah. I'm skip to the end of the story really quick, but we had hypothermia at that point. Didn't know it. So he was actually not asleep. He was passing out. I was not thinking clearly. I couldn't operate my water filter. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get the components out. And I was walking around in circles and I was confused. And that's the real danger with these things. I think it's something people don't think about is how much mentally they're going to be incapable of when they start to get themselves in dangerous situations like hypothermia, hyperthermia. Yeah. When you read about people that freeze to death, Or people that have gotten close to death and then have come back, they always say they really weren't uncomfortable. What happens is when you're really cold like that, I guess your brain goes into a state where you're really not that uncomfortable. You just kind of drift away. It's diverting that energy elsewhere in your body to try to stay warm, and then you don't have it for your mental capacities. Yeah, I was an assistant scoutmaster for a number of years, and I'm going to get back to the story, but when you teach about um, hypothermia, you talk about getting the the umbles and the mumbles and the stumbles and the grumbles, Mm -hmm. and that's, you you know, you're stuck around and you're really not in a great mood and you, you're mumbling and you know, nothing really works. The interesting thing with hypothermia is you have these moments of lucidity. Luckily that day, uh, that happened to me for about 10 seconds and I, w- I had my filter in my hand and just for a few seconds, I realized I had a real problem and I looked around and at that point, my son was slumped over and I went and I shook him and he woke up and I said, get out of your wet clothes, get in your dry clothes, start up the, the uh, stove, let's heat up some water, heat up some tea and some ramen. 
And so we got some warm food in us. We got dry clothes on. And within an hour, we were okay. But the scary thing, both of us were really scared after that because we knew what had happened. There was nobody else around and we were just heading off a cliff. That's when I realized the clothes we had on, basically, they were 100% polyester. There, There was no insulation quality for any of it. And what we did after that, once we got the warm food in us, we got in our sleeping bags for a while. And then once we got warm and we felt okay, then we went and we got water and and filtered water and all that. That period of time is when I realized that I I needed to reevaluate the clothing we took and I started to see it as gear. And that's when I started buying Merino wool. And that was the genesis. My, My idea with alpaca to skip forward really happened maybe five or six years after that when I became aware of alpaca as a fiber. Those intermediate years, Uh, I was wearing a lot of merino. I wouldn't even take polyester fleece. Some of the merino mid layers were kind of heavy, but I would take them anyway because it got to the point where you have a feeling of confidence when you've got the right shoes on or if you're a climber and you've got the right gear, there's a feeling of confidence when you have the right clothing. So if you've got a nice Gore-Tex jacket, you feel bulletproof. That makes you, it gives you some confidence on the trail. I think that is a great point. It, it, it's true. It's sometimes that one little thing. If, if you feel like, oh, I've chosen correctly in this one thing I need for this activity, it does. It gives you the sense of confidence that, okay, now I can do it. Like it's one more thing to make you feel capable of it. It really makes a huge difference. Exactly. And so anyway, that's what the genesis, we haven't really gotten there yet, but the company name Appalachian Gear was exactly because of the way I was thinking of textiles as gear. And we all know that a backpack is made out of a textile material and rain jackets. People talk about technical clothing. When they think of technical clothing, they they think of the polyester and the tight fit and the windshield and things like that. But why is it technical clothing? What is it doing for you? Polyester is lightweight and nylon's lightweight. You can make things like lightweight nylon into seal nylon, but really what makes it technical? Other than being lightweight and moisture- And then dries faster. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, and the, the drying faster, there are a lot of a lot of things like that that we're told that aren't exactly like that. It definitely depends on humidity. I've been Correct. in areas of high humidity and even, quote unquote, technical polyester cannot dry. No, the reason why, so polyester is plastic. It comes mm-hmm. from oil. There's really no difference between polyester and a plastic bottle. There's really no difference between nylon and a, and a rollaway trash can. It's all the same stuff. And it's waterproof. And so to make polyester moisture wicking, they have to put another chemical on top of it. That chemical has an attraction for water. So then the evolution of moisture wicking is if I'm wearing a polyester shirt and it's a moisture wicking shirt, then it's by definition going to cool me off. And that's not the case because the polymer coating wants to hold on to water. And if it's sunny and warm or if it's a normal temperature and very low humidity, yeah, polyester will dry, but so will merino wool and so will alpaca and actually so will lightweight cotton. The problem becomes when you have situations like where I got hypothermia and when it's in 50s and it's misty and cool, mm-hmm. polyester will not dry any better than anything else. And here's where you come into the gear idea. So if you've got technical clothing and it's not going to protect you when it's cool and damp, then what makes it technical? There's really nothing technical about it except it's a really technical process to make plastic. (laughs) And so it does not grow out of the earth. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so real technical gear 
would have a purpose in that kind of situation. Like wool socks, they'll keep you warm when you're wet. And the same thing with alpaca and the same thing with wool shirts. Technical gear doesn't protect you in normal conditions. It's the rugged conditions that where you want technical gear to protect you. So hot and dry, or cool or cold and damp. When you're in a situation where you need to survive, would you rather have that long sleeve polyester or would you rather have a long sleeve merino or a long sleeve alpaca? And I'm just throwing it in there because it's my company. <laughs> but, but sometimes people laugh when I say this. I'll, I'll prepare myself. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds funny and it sounds kind of salesy, but you know, animals didn't evolve with polyester fur. Right because it doesn't work. The fact of the matter is that the same performance characteristics that animal fibers have for us, they also have for the animals that they came off of. There's a reason we skinned animals originally so that we could wear their fur. Right, and that brings up another question. So you don't really wanna have to kill animals to be able to enjoy the fiber. (laughs) And that's the the great thing about alpacas. It's such a friendly animal to the uh, environment. They're not abused in handling and they like to get a haircut every now and then. So they don't they don't have to be skinned. And people do ask us that question and I never laugh about it because you know, I always say I've I've been a a manager a lot of my career. I've managed other people, especially when I hire young people. I always tell them that there are no dumb questions and you've probably heard that from people that yeah, hired yeah, you before. For sure. The problem is when somebody says there are no dumb questions and you ask a dumb question and they make fun of you, then you're never going to ask another dumb question. When you're around machinery like we are so much, there are seriously no dumb questions. There are serious consequences. Yeah. I mean, if you've never seen a piece of machinery or if you've never seen a certain type of rock you're going to climb or if you've never been on a certain trail, ask the dumb questions because the the real people that know what they're doing are not going to make fun of you. You might joke about it later, but one of the things, I have two sons and they're both, they're grown now. They're both in their 20s and they both work for Appalachian Gear. Luckily, they were doing other things, but I convinced them to uh, let me possibly ruin their careers by <laughs> working for their entrepreneur dad. But um, so, so this is an example of how nepotism could yeah, injure somebody's career? Right. Yeah, exactly. I told them, I told them that, you know, you, I might ruin your whole resume and then you can't look for me for money because I'll be broke too. I used to tell my kids when, when they were younger and we were in the woods, before we would leave, I'd say, I'm not going to play any practical jokes on you because we practical joke around the house all the time but when i'm out in the woods and i was this way with the scouts i'm a big believer in not doing the boy that cried wolf because one of these days there will be a snake or there will be a bear or there will be a glacier around that corner or a sasquatch yeah i'm still (laughs) waiting to see one i think they've thrown rocks at me before but yeah so you know the, the whole thing about questions about gear there are no dumb questions and that's the same thing when people ask if we had to skin an alpaca people how would they know if they've never seen it and it's not the most common animal in the u.s no as a matter of fact in the early 2000s there were only hundreds of alpacas in the united states and now there are hundreds of thousands and it's a growing industry and there are millions in peru so alpacas evolved in peru i'm not the expert on the animal evolution but in general, I believe they were a, a cross between a vacuna and uh, a llama. Vacuna is a smaller animal with actually softer hair or fur, and the llama is a larger animal. They find Peruvian alpaca clothing all the time that's hundreds of years old when they do excavations. And the Peruvians knew right off the bat that that was a protective fiber. 
and that's why they made caps and that's why they made blankets out of it it's just super tough and it's and it's uh, got all the characteristics that you need in a piece of gear so that ties in the whole gear thing when i go out in the woods now as long as i have a couple of layers of alpaca or even you know i, I have some merino wool base layers too i mean it's not that i hate everything except for alpaca but it's the natural animal fibers that give me confidence on the trail. And it gives me the confidence that as long as I'm taking care of everything else I'm supposed to do, I'm likely not going to get hypothermia. And I'm likely not going to have a heat stroke because the animal fibers also help cool you down when it's hot. And that's the other question I get that I don't laugh about. People say, well, isn't it hot in summertime? And I always tell them, no, if if you're wearing polyester and I'm wearing merino wool and somebody else is wearing cotton and it's 100 degrees, it's going to feel like 100 degrees to all of us. But the way you cool down the heat is by your garment allowing that sweat to leave. So when a garment keeps the sweat next to you, it actually makes you hotter. And in the wintertime, when your garment keeps sweat next to you, it actually makes you colder because it pulls the, right. the heat away from you. And so it's all about how quickly that fiber really dries in every condition. Our garments are made in a really different way than merino wool garments. Our garments are highly breathable. Sometimes at a festival, when I sell a shirt to somebody and they say, what's well, awfully hot? I'll tell them, put it on and walk around and come back in a while and tell me what you felt. 98 times out of 100, people will come back and say, man, I was walking around and sweating my ass off. And then a breeze blew and I got goosebumps on my back. <laughs> and I said, that's exactly what I was explaining to you. And it's because when that breeze blew, it blew the moisture off of you. That's called evaporative cooling. The alpaca is not going to make you hotter than the ambient temperature around you. And then the opposite holds true in winter. It actually is going to hold the heat that comes off of you and insulate and reflect it back to you. And that's why alpaca and merino and rabbit and all these other kinds of different types of fur are so good in cold weather. It's just a great all-purpose, true technical fabric and not plastic. Yeah, so I, I want us to talk a lot about how you came across this and then formed an entire business based around it. But before we get into that, I think it'd be great to hear about your background, both outdoors and in textiles. Let's start with the outdoors. Were you one of those people that grew up in nature? Or is that something you had to find yourself later in life? No, I'm a city boy. I grew up in a normal sized family, two parents and an older and a younger brother. We were fairly typical. We all played sports and all that, but I was- And where, where was this? That Charlotte, North Charlotte, Carolina. Okay. Yeah. I was the smartest of my two brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out neither of them are here to say otherwise. <laughs> but I did, I guess I've got all the traits uh, that you hear of a middle kid. I was also drawn to the woods. I was never afraid to be in the woods by myself when I was really young. We were lucky to have small patches of woods around us, even though we lived in Charlotte. Charlotte's a big city now, but when I grew up, it was more of a small town. When I was young, I'm, I'm, the hat I'm wearing is Mondamin. Mondamin is a very old, I think uh, within a couple of years, it'll be a hundred year old outdoor skills camp just a couple hours south of here. And it's in a little town called Tuxedo, North Carolina. When I was in elementary school, my folks sent me to Mondamin and that's where I really got heavily involved in backpacking and whitewater canoeing. Because of my age, it was really before the popularity of kayaking. We would do the Natahela and the French Broad and all that and open canoes. And that was fun, but riding horses, rock climbing, the whole thing. And so 
that hooked me. So I was probably 10 when that happened. Since then, I have been out in the woods as much as I can possibly be. As a matter of fact, for the longest time, if I would ever be in a, you know, stressed for some reason or, or unhappy for whatever reason, I would head to the woods. That's where I would go. And I would go by myself. So then I got married when I was in my mid-20s. We started camping with our kids when they were infants. So we did a lot of car camping when they were young. And so we, our whole family has just been in the woods you know, for years and years. My wife is not really a backpacker, but she loves camping. And as soon as my kids got old enough to uh, backpack, I started taking them backpacking. And my oldest son was a uh, graduate of Knowles. He also threw hiked the uh, long trail in high school and then the Appalachian Trail after college. My younger son is an Eagle Scout and I was the backpacking guy in a scout troop. So we backpacked together for years. They're, they're three and a half years apart and they've done a lot, all these solo hikes on their own. And they're, I wouldn't say expert climbers, but advanced climbers too. So just as a family, we've, we've done a lot outdoors. And circling back to growing up, there's nobody in my immediate family that was in the textile business. So no father tricked you into giving up a different career to get no. into textiles. <laughs> no, no my, my father never attempted to ruin my career. So when I was in high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, and I had a cousin that worked for my father's cousin. So he was a generation older than me, but he worked for one of the large, old kind of industrial revolution textile companies called Springs Mills. I was I was always interested in mechanical things and I, I built all my own bikes and everything I, I built my own guitar. That's what I've always done. And the things I built don't always work very well, but I still like them because I built them and that's just the way I think. He took me into one of the mills and I just, I remember this day when I was walking around, I instantly understood how every machine worked, even though I had never seen anything like that before. And so I knew right then that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, I wasn't really interested in, in uh, any of the other kind of things. But even to this day, when I walk into a plant, I immediately start sizing up all the machinery and figuring out the process. So you've got one of those brains that kind of thinks in that way. Yeah. Like you think mechanically to a sense, and this thing drives this thing, and this thing makes this other thing operate and turns yeah. this. And why does it work? And it's not even as much how does it work as it why it works. I've always got to figure out why something works. Another little funny story, it's kind of short, but I was I was doing a Appalachian Trail section from Connecticut through New Hampshire a number of years ago, and I was hiking with a friend of mine, and then we were kind of tagging along with the, uh, one of the other tramleys that was through hiking. We came out of the woods uh, up in, um, I believe it was Dalton, Massachusetts, and there's a company up there that makes paper, and they also make, or used to make, the paper that goes into dollar bills, and that has linen and cotton and you have to bleach it and there's a certain smell and we could smell it a long time before we could see it. And I was telling everybody, I smell somebody bleaching cotton. And that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. They're like, you can't <laughs> smell people. And I said, I'm telling you, somebody's bleaching cotton. And we came out of the woods and sure enough, there was that plant and it was so old that it still had the old place where the water wheel was beside it. And, and the purpose of that story is that even now, when you're in a manufacturing plant, there are just certain smells, especially a cotton plant. You know, it just never goes away. You know, now that most of the textile industry is gone, I've, I've spent a lot of time, you know, my spare time, I'll ride around and try to find old broken mills you know, even if it says no trespassing, there's a fence, I'll still break in and walk around. And, you know, it's just, I think it's if really any cool. police officers are listening, <laughs> this is anecdotal. He doesn't really do that. <laughs> yes, right. But it's just the only two things that really affect me that way are being in a manufacturing plant or being in the mountains. 
And I've, I've told people before, I've even, I think, mentioned it in an interview before, but sometimes I'll be dressed up for a business meeting. If I'm riding through the mountains, I just have to pull off and walk up the trail. It's really crazy that I can't ride through a mountainous area without at least going down a road and being in it for a while. Those two things are, I guess, what would define me more than anything else. I think it's pretty pretty great that you found these things that, like two separate things that you're super passionate about, and then they've come together in some capacity. I imagine your earlier ventures and your earlier jobs in the textile industry were not that way, right? You were probably not working in outdoor textiles before. Now, I started off in the automotive industry, and the funny thing is, as much as I enjoy these two things, these two things bring a lot of pain <laughs> because, you know, manufacturing is not always smooth. It's really stressful and it's a continuously involving environment. Being with Appalachian Gear, even though that we're up, up on the trail today, but Appalachian Gear has actually taken me out of the woods for the right. last five yeah. years. And so it's like, you know, I really want to be developing stuff while I'm walking, but I can't do that. Well, actually, I did get the idea while I was hiking. Yeah, so I started off in the automotive industry. We were making automotive carpet and fabric, and it was a big Fortune 500 company. And so I kind of got trained in the old school ways of manufacturing that had been around for generations and generations. My kind of personality worked to my advantage because my first job was in quality assurance. It was during the time when Honda and Toyota was really punching GM and Ford and Chrysler in the face. And so the American automotive industry had to rethink its ideas of quality assurance. We had started to look at the Japanese methods of manufacturing. The Japanese methods, the quality methods were taught by a guy named Edward Deming after World War II and they're rebuilding Japan. And it was all about having a process that was in control. So the American way of doing things was just making as much as you could make and then you eyeballed at the end. So it's like final inspection and that's not quality assurance. That's just calling out the bad stuff. The Japanese were making good stuff all the time and they did it by analyzing data and using statistics and designing processes. Which is interesting because that's how the whole world works now. Data gathering is a huge part of every industry at this point. Yeah, and what we did back in the 80s was really interesting. We didn't know what was going on. Everything seemed slow motion while you're in it, but everything we did was the precursor to the ISO designations and what you hear now is Six Sigma. We were doing all that and we were writing all these quality manuals from the very ground up and we were learning how to use statistical tools and how to measure processes and measure things that we never thought about measuring before. And so that part was really cool to me. And my degree is in textiles, by the way. I I skipped over that. So after I went into the, looked at the manufacturing plant, I wound up going into the, the textile school at NC State University. Everything I've done has been in textiles. So anyway, a lot of the folks that I worked with and or went to school with in college had gotten out and they were engineers and they were working in cubicles. The job I had in the particular plant I had had never had a college educated person in it. It was always just somebody that had worked their way into a job and they were just in charge of final inspection. My first day on the job, my boss showed me a piece of paper that was a complaint notice from GM. And he said, you see this? And I said, yeah. And he said, that's complaint notice. You can get three of these in a year. And I said, is that a lot? He said, no, we got 10 last year. (laughs) And I said, what happens if I get four? And he said, you're fired. That was my first day of work. And there was no system in place. I had the opportunity to be able to go to like five different plants. It was part of my job because our raw materials came out of the different plants. And so I was able to learn every process in that company. So I'm kind of a freewheeling kind of person and 
you know, I'm not really good at the day-to-day grind, but I am really good at working through issues and problems. Yeah, it sounds like you have a problem solver's brain yeah. when it comes down to it. I'm looking back on it. I didn't realize it at the time, but my bosses would always send me into these awful situations where a big customer was going to reject a million dollars worth of stuff. And I know now it's because they didn't want to go and fail and get fired. So they would send the new guy. <laughs> and but, I mean, it might be that they had faith in your abilities. That well, could be part of it. <laughs> maybe they did. Well, at the time, I don't think I'd earned that, but I think I did earn it eventually because I, I could go into these places and understand what was happening and understand why they were having a problem. And I was always able to find a way to work around the issue and they would keep all the stuff rather than send it back. That became one of the things that I did. You know, I would go out and travel and I would problem solve. I was good at it. And it was what I, and it was, ne- it was, wasn't fun. I'm one of those people that also historically has gotten put in that position. It's kind of flattering because it's like, oh, people have a lot of faith in my ability to solve problems, but it also sucks because it means you're always in the worst situations yeah. trying to fix things. Yeah. It, the stress is always there and it's a live by the sword, die by the sword. Right. And it's kind of like a salesman, the stereotypical salesman in everybody's mind mind is is the back slapping handshaking guy that's always talking and smiling greasy car salesman guy yeah so you can't go in a situation like that and just be throwing out a bunch of bs because everybody you talk to is smart you know you're talking to engineers and you're talking to people that actually the, the hardest person to actually talk to is the guy that's running the machinery and they hate the guys who walk in and just spout yeah. a bunch of bs yeah and it's because they're working with this thing every day and then what you find out is maybe this thing is happening them because their process wasn't designed correctly or they didn't get trained correctly or they didn't understand something. And then once you start working with people like that, you teach them more about your product and here's how it works. It makes their job better because they're dealing with that every day. And when stuff like that becomes a grind, then they hate everything around them. But if you can show them a better way to do it, then you know it makes their job easier. They're producing better quality. And so it's all really about working with people and trying to come up with a real solution. To me, I think that that put me way ahead of people that were in cubicles because every day was a pass fail for me. I, it was just like no in between. I was judged on how much good stuff went out of my plant and how much bad stuff came back. It was just real simple. Nobody cared how smart I was or how many hours as I work, it was actual performance. Right. They want to see what the results are. And yeah. that's what they, that's what matters to them. Yeah. yeah. So you start out in automotive, but at some point you move outside of that. I met my wife. I met her in Charleston, South Carolina, and I promised her I would have her back in Charleston in a year and a half. And that was <laughs> in 1988 or whatever and we've never been back so this is the problem you cannot solve (laughs) so that was bs i did i can't say that what i did in quality assurance was the same that what i would do on a date but (laughs) but, skills don't always translate it's a whole different set of skills but anyway i went into the textile chemical industry i was recruited out of the company i was working for and i actually did go into sales and that broaden my scope even more because I got to see a lot of different type of textile companies, but I was also selling chemicals into every industry. So I got to see every kind of industry. That kind of segues into my current business partner. We had gone to the same junior high school and we knew who each other were, but we weren't really friends. And then we we were in a common friend's wedding and we realized that we were both in the textile chemical industry, but we weren't competitors. So we started going and making sales calls together. And then one fateful day, we were 29 and we were eating lunch 
and I convinced him that we needed to build our own dye house. In the old days of the textile industry, specifically like t-shirts and sportswear, the way it worked was you have a yarn company would spin the yarn, a knitting company would knit it, a dyeing and finishing company would finish it, put the color on it and all that kind of stuff. Then a cut and sew company would sew it and then a printing company would print it. And then generally the printing company or some other company was the interface with the brand. You know, most brands didn't manage their whole supply chain. There was right. always some company that had the license to make things for Nike or Nautica or whoever. The industry that we decided to go into was called commission dyeing and finishing. So we didn't own our own fabric. It was a service of putting the color on it. I convinced them that we needed to do this. So that was our first foray into being entrepreneurs. We designed and built our own dye house. We used our own money. My wife was pregnant during the year that we were building and I had used all of my 401k on starting this company. You know, we got small business loans and we got a little private investment, but we had to go all in ourselves. One day I thought she was out shopping and she really wasn't. And it was, we had literally, it's not an exaggeration, we had one can of tuna left in the house. And so I gave it to the dog. <laughs> and because he didn't have any dog food and we were broke, she got home and that was the maddest that she's ever been because we were going to split a can of tuna for dinner. <laughs> she said, well, you need to go to the store. And I said, well, I can't. I've just spent all the rest of our money. And I'd spent the money on a piece of machinery that we wouldn't use for like a year. We, and that you definitely couldn't eat. Yeah, we couldn't <laughs> eat. And um, magically after that, some investment came through and all that kind of stuff. So that was about a month that we were broke. But we got this die house going and I'll make this part quick. At one time, we had up to 90 employees. And if you look through our whole period of about 12 years that we ran this, we had probably an average of 50 or 55. You know, we ran it 24 hours a day. And I think we produced been a long time since I've added it up, but maybe 200 million yards of fabric over a period of 12 years. And that sounds like a lot. We never got rich doing it, but it was, it was a great industry to be in. And we were young, you know, we made some mistakes and we did some great things. And I bet you made a lot of business connections because we, of that. We made business connections and we became known for being able to do the tougher seasonal shades. So we didn't do a lot of navies and blacks and reds. My partner was uh, really an expert dyer. It's an art. A lot of it is technical these days and shades are generated by computers, but he had learned the old school way, just like I had. And, and, you know, he could look at stuff. He could come up with the formula. That's why we made a good combination. I did, I guess, really more of the engineering and business end of things. And he did more of the plant process kind of things. And then we had a lot of overlap. It was really kind of a, uh, it was an interesting time for us. And we kind of scraped and clawed the whole time. And, you know, there were some years we really did well. But what happened was right in the middle of all of it is when NAFTA was passed, like 1995 or six, around 2000, 2001 is when a lot of the Far East trade agreements start happening. And the giant sucking sound really did happen that everybody laughed at Ross Perot about. And we saw the entire textile industry evaporate right before our eyes. And literally what happened happened with us, we had learned how to operate really lean, but we just couldn't outrun what was going on in the market. And literally one day we walked in the plant and there were no more orders on the fax machine. So nobody sent orders by email back then for whatever reason. And so we started calling clients and they said, no, we've moved our production to Honduras. We moved our production to Guatemala or whatever. We had to tell all the employees that they're out of a job literally one day. And you were out of a job too. I was out of a job too. And not only that, we had to kind of unwind the whole place. Amazingly, there were pieces of machinery that we had paid 
$200,000 for that were now junk because it's hard to package up a piece of machinery that's as big as a tractor trailer and then ship it overseas. Right. And there was a whole market. There, there was a lot of machinery going down south, down to Mexico and to the Caribbean. But basically, a lot of these textile industries were just mothballed. It wasn't a surprise because we outlasted, I think we counted 250 companies that did exactly what we did that had gone out of business before we did. And we were in defensive mode at that point. So the whole idea back then was to survive by being the last man standing. And we got down, at least in our market in the Southeast, we got down to being the last handful standing, but we just, we didn't have enough to get us over the line. So then we went our separate ways. She stayed in the textile industry and I actually got into the software industry. I was backpacking pretty heavily. So during that period of time, my, my kids were young teens and getting a little bit older and we were doing a lot of backpacking. That really is the, the genesis of the whole alpaca thing happened after the hypothermia incident when we started buying Merino. My Merino garments really in a short hike would get full of holes and they would all run like stockings. During that same period of time, I had this recurring dream a couple times a month, but it was consistent that I would go back in and open my old plant. And it really happened that way. I mean, and I wake up and I go, shit, I thought I opened my plant again. I mean, and, and my partner was going through the same thing. So we wanted to be back in the textile industry so bad, but there was really no way to do it. Somebody had told me to look into alpaca fiber because evidently there were barns full of it because it was growing domestically and there was nothing anybody could do with it. There's a lot of hand knitting here and it's a crafty industry. So I started studying the alpaca industry and I was taking classes and I was talking to people and I was doing everything I could do to figure out what I could figure out about it. I couldn't find any alpaca clothing except for women's shawls or fluffy sweaters that you know if you get them wet they hang down to your ankles and i started wondering why and then i started talking to people i knew about it and nobody seemed to know why there was no such thing as an alpaca garment that was like a merino wool performance garment and that just really befuddled me i didn't really know how to get started at that point you know i've been out of the textile industry for five or six years at that point right because you know if no one else is doing it there's a reason but if you can't find out what the reason is then yeah. you don't want to have to figure that out on your own well, that kind of thing drives me crazy. You know, that's the kind of thing that drives me crazy because I knew that it should be like Merino and I knew that it should be a good fiber. And actually, alpaca has better characteristics than Merino. They're all parallel, but alpaca just goes a little bit farther. So, and I, I don't like to say anything bad about Merino because I don't have anything against Merino. There are enough people that need natural fibers that there's business for all of us. But if you have a Merino fiber that's the same diameter as an alpaca fiber, the alpaca fiber has a higher tensile strength, yet it's lighter weight because it's largely hollow. It's not hollow like a straw, but it's got hollow voids pretty consistently in it. And so being lighter and stronger is key for any textile fiber, light and strong. It doesn't matter if it's gear or not. It also is warmer because of the voids. And it also breathes better because it, it doesn't absorb as much water. So alpaca fiber only absorbs about 10% of its weight in water, 10 or 11. And merino can absorb up to 30. So it gets heavier and it will hold on to more of the moisture. I couldn't figure out why. 
this was probably 2008. So my partner and I had started a little chemical business. So we had decided to, I got a software business. We were in this chemical business and it took me from 2008 to 2015 to convince him <laughs> we needed to look at literally, it's funny how we operate because we had this business that was going along pretty well, concentrated on environmentally friendly chemicals for industry. So we would go in and we'd find people that we used to do business with in the textile industry that had gone to other industries and we wanted to look at their operation to say, oh yeah, well, we can take that solvent-based chemical out. We can put this polymer-based chemical in or whatever. And it was okay, but we both wanted to be back in the textile industry, but I just kept hammering them on alpaca. And my partner is not an outdoors person. He is a more of a team sports person. So, you know, he went to college to play baseball or football. I can't remember, but he was a good football and baseball player. And he wound up not doing that in college, but you know, he's a team sports golf kind of person. And so I kept telling him, you don't understand you know, we need to figure this out. Finally, he relented because I wasn't giving up on it. We bought some fiber and we found there's a guy that, that works with us that helps us out. He's an old retired textile guy. We tried to figure out how to uh, knit it. Is that when you discovered what the problem was that everyone else yeah, was having? The problem was that you can't knit alpaca, <laughs> not in the way we wanted to do it. And we didn't really understand why. I mean, you, there's no research on it. There are white papers on why alpaca was good so we basically we ruined five or six thousand dollars worth of fiber trying to knit it we had to learn on our own what was different about why would this fiber not react in a textile machine the same way virtually everything else because we dealt with wool before we had dyed wool in our process it's a we've got a provisional patent so i can't really say a whole lot <laughs> except that you figured it out <laughs> except that we figured it out and it was the crazy i can say some things when you try to knit alpaca if you don't really know what you're doing if you conceive of how you're going to come up with your yarn specification and how you're going to knit it based on all your previous experience and you load up a knitting machine with it the yarn just flies apart literally it flies apart uh, it doesn't want to stay together alpaca is a really smooth fiber and things don't stick to it which is really great as a matter of fact we'll do wash tests to check shrinkage and we'll mark on it with a sharpie and and two-thirds of the time the sharpie washes off once we figured out how to knit it we thought we were home free because my partner mike and i we're knitting and finishing experts We've knit and finished everything on every kind of machinery you can ever think of. We tried, we actually bought some machinery we thought would work and it was the wrong stuff. The thing that happened to us in this business repeatedly is we kept buying pieces of machinery that were the wrong pieces of machinery because we thought we knew how. And so we had to reconceive of how to run this fabric. People don't really understand knitting any fabric is not. So when you knit cotton for a t-shirt, that's not the end of the process. Dying and finishing is not just putting on the shade. You actually have to stabilize the fabric so that your cotton won't shrink 20% in each direction. There's a lot of art and skill involved in producing a fabric that's exactly the right weight and exactly the right dimensions. So with a knit, you're looking at loops per inch, you know, or we call them courses per inch in one direction and whales per inch in the other direction and having a garment that drapes well and a garment that does what you're supposed to do. So the, the finishing process was where we ruined the next tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> worth of fabric. The thing I can say that people always laugh about, but we have actually built auxiliary pieces of machinery using um, skateboard wheels and trucks, skateboard trucks, pool balls, two by fours. We started going to old warehouses with piles of old textile junk, 
pieces of machines. We would buy three different pieces of machinery, drag it back to our plant and just take it apart and cobble back together. It's like when you're a kid and you would make a chopper out of a bicycle, the same thing. And some of the stuff that we have looks just like something you'd see in The Little Rascal. It's, it, I'm telling you, it's, and it works. And so one of the things that we've slowly been doing is talking to folks that make custom machinery. And so we'll get drawings made and then we'll make a piece of machinery. But the learning process for how to make this has, has been a really interesting process because we just had to forget everything we ever knew. Anyway, that was a long, that was a long description, but it's, <laughs> It's been fun and it's cost us virtually everything because, I mean, it, we're entrepreneurs and for people that might listen to the podcast, you know, we're not trust fund babies and we're not wealthy. I mean, literally real entrepreneurs are always willing to go all the way over the cliff because if you're not willing to go all the way, you're just not going to make it. It can't you can't just be a rich person and say, oh, I'm going to start making tires for a living. It doesn't work that yeah, way. Entrepreneur is just a particular type of gambler. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Being an entrepreneur is, it's not like playing roulette because you have no control over, over roulette. Right. It's like a gambler who has better stakes. Risk taker. Right. Yeah. We are off the chart risk takers, but we believe in our ability to do what we're going to do. So it's kind of like you're a climber, right? You probably never attempted a wall that when you were at the bottom, you thought there's no way I'm going to make it to the top. You're going to make it to the top. And when you get halfway and something happens, you can't just fall or go back. You have to keep on going. And that's, I think that's the difference. It's its risky because you risk losing all of your money. It's calculated risk. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't have enough money to retire on anyway. And it wasn't doing any good. So I may as well piss it down the drain on a new company. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it, in every point that we almost failed, and we have been to that point numerous times just in this business, there's something you can't overcome. That's why the development process takes so long because there would be months where we had reached the limit of our knowledge and we couldn't overcome it. And then one of us would call the other one at midnight and go, I know what the hell we need to do. And then we go and try it. We have different skill sets and we look at things different ways. And it's so it's funny. Some of the things he came up with are things that I would have never, ever thought about doing. And some of the things I came up with were things that he would have never, ever thought of doing. And you put them together and then you, you've got a product. And then the other thing is, it's just like anything. If you if you look at any of your name brands, products that came out in the early days, they're different than not maybe mass produced products, but they, they evolve. And our products are the same way. So the first products we came out with, we were happy with. It was the only thing on the market. We were the only company in the world that was making this stuff. But everything we're making now is so much better than what we were making even just a couple of years ago because you start evolving the process and then you start tweaking all these little things that drive us crazy. I'm always pointing out things to other people that, yeah, that, that drives me crazy. And people always say, well, it drives you crazy, but nobody even notices it. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. It just drives me crazy and I have to fix it. I think that's the other thing that drives people like us is that things always drive us crazy and we're never satisfied with it. If we ever get satisfied it's the same thing. I'm gonna go back to climbing. You know, if you're ever, ever not nervous and overconfident, you're gonna get hurt. And it's the same way as when you're using machinery. If you get overconfident and lackadaisical, you're gonna get hurt. And the same thing, if we ever come to the office and we go, well, it's perfect, everything's great. Well, it's not gonna be great. Right, because you can't attain perfection. Right. You should always be trying to, but you never will get there. Well, and that goes back to the Japanese thing, believe it or not. Some people used to think it was corny sounding. Part of a good quality assurance program is called continuous improvement. And some people think, oh, it's, that's a buzzword the marketing guy uses. Mm -hmm. but, but it's true. So if you're not always trying to improve everything you're doing, you actually start going backwards. Right. And that's kind of what we do every day. 
that was what happened with Appalachian gear in a in a nutshell. It's gear. I mean, it's it's I feel confident when I wear it. And I know it's my stuff, but it's just like anybody makes packs. You know, you got some new pack companies out there. They're doing some really cool things like Waymark and like Light AF because they wanted to make some things better for themselves because they knew what they wanted. And I, I made the determination that if I could make something that would suit me, that it would have to suit somebody else. It doesn't mean it's gonna be good for everybody. Everybody's not gonna like it, but I'm not trying to make something for everybody to like. I'm trying to make something for people who appreciate it to I like. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make also, is they think, well, everyone has to be pleased by this. And we try to please everyone, you just please no one. Right, that's what kills products. And you see it all the time. You see it in the gear industry. Company that comes out and makes a really cool piece of gear, and then the next thing you know, they just can't get big enough fast enough. You know, they want more. Everybody, you get to a certain, oh, this is not good enough. We want more, and we want to be bigger. And then the only way to get bigger is you have to find a new consumer base. Well, then a lot of times you you have to kind of standardize or vanillaize your product to make it more palpable or usable for. And then, and that's where you, that's when you kind of lose your, the specialization of your product. That's what we're going to try to resist. It's like the hoodie. It's so comfortable. I don't know why everybody in the world wouldn't wear it, but I'm not really trying to market to the fashion industry. I have no sense of fashion. Uh, you know, I mean, and really, I, I swear it's funny because most of the days that I exist, I'm wearing wrinkled clothes and I've got coffee stains and fashion so far into me. And I can't make stuff that would look good to everybody, but I can make stuff that works. And so that's what we're concentrating on is we're making stuff that works for people when they're out in the environment. That's where we are, and that's where we're going to be for the foreseeable future. So we've talked about a lot of different things kind of leading up to it, but we haven't defined. So let's tell people what Appalachian Gear Company is and what you specifically do. Appalachian Gear, and I say Appalachian, you say Appalachian. Did I say Appalachian? They're both right. <laughs> it it right. just depends on where you come from. Lee, Lee says Appalachian, too. I know people in this region would give me a hard time if I said Appalachian. I hear it both ways. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, and they're both, they, they are, they're both right. The essence of our company is a company that makes 100% alpaca fiber garments for outdoor, I call it outdoor adventure sports. It can be anybody that's just likes day hiking to people that are ice climbing to whitewater kayaking, backpacking. So the design characteristics of our products are to be lightweight, to be 100% alpaca. We're not blending any polyester or nylon and to be comfortable and functional and to be durable. Durability is the very first thing that we concentrated on because if we made a lightweight fabric that couldn't put up with backpack straps or climbing harnesses, well, you've got nothing. The bane of my existence was going out in a lightweight wool shirt and getting 15 holes under my backpack belt in the, literally in the first five days. And then they would run like a stocking. Lightweight and ultralight when you're talking textile materials, including backpack materials, there is always a trade-off, which people don't understand. But the lighter you go, the less durable things become. And there are some high-tech products like the Dyneema composite that used to be Cuban fiber. It's super light and super strong, but you know, it's, it's also got some uh, Achilles heels with it. There are some issues with it. Same thing with Dyneema fiber. Whenever you have something that's really great in one area that sometimes you have to sacrifice another area. So with alpaca, we wanted it to be good and hot and good and cold, and we want it to be super lightweight. And we had to make seams that we're gonna put up with straps. Those were the design characteristics. That's what we met. In terms of our seams, 
So if you look at our stuff, go out and pay attention to a lot of the brand's technical gear and garments. So if you look at shirts, a lot of times you have seams that are doing all kinds of crazy things and panels and side panels that are supposed to breathe. Seams are exactly like knots and ropes when you're climbing. A knot is always the weak point and a seam is always the weak point. The keep it simple stupid method of design is what we start off with. So our garments all have just your standard. They look like they're built like a t-shirt. They got a top seam. They got a shoulder seam. They got a bottom hem. I've kept the seams to the minimum. And the funny thing is when I was working with my designers, because I'm not a designer, but I, you know, I would draw out what I wanted and they would always say, oh, well, the backpack strap is going to rub that shoulder seam. And I, and I said, well, actually, you don't want your backpack strap on your shoulder. But a lot of people now with the ultralights, the backpack strap is on the shoulder. But I said, I also don't want a seam on my back and but whatever seam we put up there has got to really put up with the rub all along in our development process we were testing our fabric we would use third-party labs that use the standard astm testing and so we did some things like we would we would test our fabric to the upholstery abrasion test because i knew i'd have a backpack and we got to the point where our lightweight shirt fabric would pass upholstery specs. <laughs> and, Should we you know, expect you to start making couches in the yeah, near future? Trail couch, be cool. The funny thing is that those tests a lot of times, an, an ASTM test uh, will go up to a certain amount of cycles and stop. The test is supposed to allow you to kind of interpolate what's gonna happen in the future. The first person that ever wore one of our shirts, uh, his name is Ben Vaughn, and he's, he's one of our Appalachian gear pros and he's, he's through like, the AT and the PCT now, but I met him at trail days a couple of years ago and he grabbed a shirt and he took it 1800 miles before he got the first hole in it. Well, I take that back. He got it and he hiked for about a week and it was one of our very earliest shirts and it popped a hole on its own. It had a little yarn problem. And he called me, he said, man, this shirt has a hole in it. And I said, well, where are you? He told me he was somewhere up in Virginia. And I said, all right, I'll be there tomorrow with another shirt. And so I drove <laughs> another shirt and I, and I gave shirts to all the people he was hiking with. And I think he thought I was crazy. And you know, we're all, we're really good friends now, but that second shirt he, he took and I've got it, he sent it back to me. And it was amazing because under his backpack, it was a little hairy and and really when you wash alpaca it gets a little fuzzy anyway but based on his height and how many steps he walked i determined that backpack rubbed on his shoulders and his back 2.4 million cycles didn't have a hole there was no hole in his back to this day we've never had a shirt or a hoodie that had a seam that came apart ever the seam we have on our shirts we call the trail seam and it's a double sewn seam so they put the shirt together kind of like a t-shirt and then they cover stitch the top and bottom my idea there was if you wear through one stitch you still got another one underneath i don't mind holes because you're going to fall and poke a hole in it or whatever but if a shirt just falls apart that's bad we really haven't had any massive failures and then and back to the thing with the holes you might poke a hole in it whatever but we have a special knit structure that resists running when i first met lee i told him that and he he had poked a couple holes in his shirts and they didn't run i said they'll get a little bit bigger but they're not going to run because if a hole that runs all of a sudden creates a place that's just right. the whole thing's going to rip since we've been selling garments i would just be lying if i told people we've never have a sh shirt that has a hole popped in it i mean it's a hard fiber to run every once in a while there's a, a fault in the yarn there could be a needle cut needle cutting is uh, issue you have in sewing and uh, sometimes you get a microscopic burr on a sewing needle and they're high speed and it can cut through the yarn but you don't see it when you sell it so you put it on two or three times and bing you got a hole and so i always tell people i'm gonna get you another shirt but 
you know, if somebody might be doing taking a zero or whatever, I'm like, just don't worry, that shirt is not going to fall apart. Just keep it with you. I'll get you another shirt to wherever the, your next mail drop is, or if it's just somebody that not hiking, I do the same thing. But I always tell them, keep the shirt with a hole in it. People, people always say, well, don't you need to see it? Because they're used to companies not trusting them and saying, oh, send it back and well, that was your fault. Well, I don't care whose fault it was, you know, because what I'm doing is I'm compiling, I get people to take pictures of it, send it to me. I'm compiling a picture list of look what happens with this hole on day one and what happens with this hole on day 100. We have yet to have one that runs, you know, and I've, we've got plenty of shirts have holes in them. That's one of those durability things that we designed in the seam and the whole, the run resisting technology is, is key to what we're doing. One of the things you've also mentioned is that it's a hundred percent alpaca with no blend. Why is that important to you? So when we started out, it was important for us to have a hundred percent alpaca garment for one reason. And it's because nobody ever done it before. And I'm not talking about your grandmother's fluffy alpaca sweater or shawl. I'm talking about something that can be worn the way we want to wear it, a piece of gear. As soon as we had the product developed, and I don't know if I had just become aware of it or if it all happened at the same time, but this idea of macroplastics in the environment. So macroplastic is something you can see, like the floating island of plastic in the Pacific We've been complaining for years about just on the AT where I spend more of my time being in a trail shelter and we've picked up trash today. There's just trash everywhere. But almost as soon as we got in this business, this idea of microplastics started really being in part of our awareness. As it turns out, it's a huge issue and it's getting worse. A macroplastic really is more trash. It's, it's throwaway items made from plastic synthetic fibers, whatever. Microplastics are little bits of plastic that wash off of your polyester nylon clothes that are a micron or smaller. Traditional water treatment doesn't catch these things. So they, they, they end up in the food chain. Yeah. They're in our bodies. They're in umbilical cords and babies. Yep. Yeah. They go and, and they're falling off of you in, while you're hiking. People, when they think of polyester, that's a nice enough inert name, but it's polyethylene terephthalate. And phthalates are also things that can interrupt your hormone cycle. And if you eat a piece of plastic, it's coming out the other end because it's large, but you, you get down to microplastics, you get down to things that are such a smaller scale that can actually get into your system. Get into your bloodstream, yeah. become a permanent part of your body. Yeah, and you, your body is a chemical factory and an electric factory. And so the science isn't there to understand what's happening with those things in your body. And we already know that we have been affected by chemicals and plastic packaging and, you know, the whole thing with the BHT, I think is what it was called. In oh, the, yeah, the uh, BPA. In the, yeah, in the bottles. Yeah, BHT was a, a something else. It's a preservative in cardboard, which is the same thing. And so it's really important for us now. It's almost, sometimes I hate using this word because it sounds like I'm taking myself too seriously, but it's almost like we're on a mission. In the merino industry, you see now that there are a lot of blends. A lot of people are blending nylons and polyester. And we're also, alpaca is on everybody's radar. The tide we're fighting now is that people say, oh, well, we've got an alpaca garment. And there literally is a garment out there that says we use alpaca fiber and it's 2% alpaca. <laughs> and it drives me crazy. And, you know, for whatever reason, the labeling, I don't know if people are trying to obscure the blends, but it just seems like that it should all be clear on the labeling. But anybody can knit a blend 
you know, what we did was something nobody could do, but I'll, I'll you know, you can put a 50-50 alpaca polyester blend in any plant and then blend it. You know, the problem with that is the microplastics, number one, it keeps plastic fibers in the forefront of, of the consumer and the consumer doesn't realize it, especially when they advertise, oh, we've got a merino wool garment, it's all natural. What? It's not all natural if you've got nylon in it or polyester. But the simple fact of the matter is if you have like this, this large hoodie weighs 12 ounces and if 50% of it is polyester, there's only six ounces of alpaca. That means it only works half as good as mine. And it's a performance thing. And, and part of what I'm trying to do when I'm in front of people is educate them about that. So there are two reasons people, three reasons put polyester or nylon in with alpaca or merinos. Number one, so they can actually knit it. Number two, to make it cheaper because plastic fibers are dirt ass cheap. And number three, to make it stronger. And it's not that my product isn't strong. Um, Sean, who's running around here, took his hoodie, you know, 2,000 miles. Ben Vaughn, the guy I was telling you about a minute ago, he just finished the PCT uh, a couple months ago, and his hoodie looks exactly like the day he left with it. There's not a hole in it. There's not a worn place in it. And so these companies, though, when they are making lightweight natural fiber products, they have to blend the synthetics in order to get the strength that they need because they haven't overcome the barriers that we overcame. And so this whole thing about being on a mission is we really are on a mission and we participate in a lot of the trash tag stuff with Steven Reinhold, but it's, it's a major problem. There are white papers out there right now that show that up to 700,000 particles of microplastics come out of your laundry, not laundromat, but your laundry if you're, if you're washing a bunch of synthetics. There was a recent article about tea bags and the millions that come off of a single tea bag. Yeah. Another recent article, uh, I believe it was carried in S News as well as some other places, but there's a person that has actually found synthetic fibers raining down in Colorado. Think of it this way. If you're, if you're in a uh, room and the right light and the light shining through the room and you see all the dust flying around, polyester fibers and nylon fibers for that matter are most often in the 10 micron range. And micron's something else. We may not have time to talk about it. <laughs> a red blood cell is generally between six and eight microns in diameter. So think of a fiber that's 10 microns. Well, of course, if it breaks off, it doesn't fall to the ground. It's not plastic like a plastic bag. Mm -hmm. A fiber that's one micron long and maybe 10 microns wide just floats. And so there's all this stuff floating in the environment. And just like you said, so the minnows eat it, crustaceans eat it, birds eat the minnows, worms eat it. And then it winds up being in everything that we have. Yeah, and when I said that it is found in the umbilical cords of births, that's that's true. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah. It is sincerely in our system and then passed on to our newborn babies. It gets in your bloodstream. If somebody says, oh, it's too big. Well, how is it too big? A blood cell is eight microns across and a piece of polyester is 10, a microplastic, or less. And as you were pointing out, these plastics are also coated in chemicals that, that continue to adhere to those microplastics yep. that also end up in your bloodstream. Think of all the rage. So the one thing we hadn't talked about, merino and alpaca both are bacteria resistant. You can hike in these hoodies for months, and if you, you don't have to wash it. Just hang it up, give it a few days, and they freshen up. They don't hold on to funk or bacteria 
the reason polyester and nylon get funky is because bacteria will reside in the in the microscopic dimples in those fi those fibers are not smooth like everybody thinks they are. As a matter of fact, the way you dye polyester is you heat it to 265 degrees, and the dye you use is not a dye that has a chemical reaction like like you're dyeing cotton or wool or alpaca. It's a pigment, and so what happens is at 265 degrees, the pores open up in polyester and then the particle goes in it and you cool it down and it's stuck in there. It's not a chemical reaction. Polyester in that state is pretty well inert. You've got all kinds of uh, chemicals in there, but the, the bacteria will reside in those microscopic dimples too. And that's why detergents don't get that funk out. That's why it's permafunk. When you're talking about chemicals, think about antibacterial treatments on or anti-stink treatments on polyester. What well, sounds great, it's gonna make me not stink, but if the person that buys that is really a naturalist and, they, and they're watching what they eat, and they, well, what is this chemical that is rubbing off on their skin that kills bacteria? I mean, your skin has bacteria all over it. We need it. Your stomach, your intestines, bacteria. If it weren't for bacteria, we'd die. And so now you're wearing clothes that kill bacteria. Well, sometimes it's silver. And everybody, oh, well, silver is okay. Well, I know that in the old days they kept water in a silver goblet because it fought bacteria. But there's also a thing called heavy metal poisoning. You know, look at power plants. They've got all these heavy metals coming out, nickel and cobalt and silver and mercury. Well, why do you want silver ions all over you? If you happen to be a werewolf, it'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's my, that's my concern. <laughs> but no, the, the funny thing is, uh, and some of these chemicals are really bad for the environment. So you think of something that is toxic to bacteria then the manufacturing plant that puts it on is also washing it down the drain. And yeah, it may be going to a treatment plant, but anything that's toxic to bacteria is also toxic to every single thing that's in a stream or on the ground. That's not good. And so anyway, back to the synthetic thing and back to what we said a long time ago, synthetics are just so ubiquitous now. People are so used to the feel of synthetics and technical fabric and all that. People have forgotten how good natural fibers are. And, and even think if you're in Arizona, I mean, I, with the scouts, it was always, I would hammer into them when we go on a trip, don't bring your cotton hoodies, you know, leave them and they'll always laugh at me. Oh, the old man's always bitching about the cotton hoodies. But you know, cotton is great in the Southwest for the same reasons it's terrible here. It's, right. it's great in a dry, you do want it a little bit wet in a dry environment. And so cotton and linen and merino and alpaca, these are all great fibers. And polyester, it sucks. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't do anything. I'm not saying that it's not good for rain jackets and there's a place for it, but what happens is when we become dependent on, and in the outdoor industry, 98% of everything is synthetic. Well, what happens in a generation when more cars are electric and we've got more solar and that kind of, we still got to rely on the oil industry to give us polyester. People have to start thinking a different way about their clothing. Be honest, I'm not a uh, isolationist. People that are anti-globalist always have to hear people say, oh, well, you're isolationist. That's not, well, there's been global trade throughout the history of man. And before the World Trade Agreement, there was global trade. I mean, some countries that were closed, maybe there wasn't global trade. So I don't have a problem with other countries it's just that in some of the countries like China, where most of the polyester is coming from these days, it's almost like they're just pounding out so many millions of pounds of it and people are, are just pushing it on the public. It's harder to do what we do. And that's why a company that's making 
five million polyester shirts a year, they're not going to mess with merino wool or alpaca. They, I mean, why? They don't. It's more expensive. And it's harder to do, and they're You've not got to educate the public so they want it. Yeah, right. that's that's what we're trying to do. And people, what we find is that people say people thank us for being out there because they've been looking for something like this. I mentioned to you just a few months ago, I was asking people like, hey, what solutions are you guys finding that aren't, you know, plastic clothes or merino wool because I want something else. And right. then I just happened to find out about you guys, about your company a few months later. Well, I mean, I personally, I would like to see the merino wool market retool and go back to trying to make some of this lightweight stuff without nylon. I mean, it is a step in the right direction to have merino wool, even if it has 15% nylon or polyester. But, you know, we're proof. And I know they can make the heavier weight stuff 100%. You know, even though you've got the issue of superwash with merino wool, which is a environmentally damaging process and it and it damages the fiber itself too but we're proof that you can make it without synthetics and they're making the things that are over 200 grams i believe a lot of these wool companies are making it with 100 percent. it's just the real lightweight stuff they're having a problem with i'd like to see some of these companies just kind of leave the plastics behind and i always tell people i'm not an environmental activist because i'm not out picketing and carrying and i'm, I'm not browbeating my friends but you know i'm trying to lead by example even in our former life, when we were in the finishing business, the one thing I didn't talk about is we could have burned number six fuel oil in our boilers, but we burned natural gas back then when it was more expensive. We recycled all the BTUs off our hot water. We recycled our water and we overbuilt our waste treatment. People at the city sewer plant would bring prospective companies by our plant to show them what we had done because... Even back then, just because we could do something, it didn't mean we were doing it. We wanted to be out front of everybody else. And so that's the way it is now. We, you know, we're just trying to lead by example. And even in our plant, you look at the packaging you got, all of our packaging is cardboard. We wrap it in paper. The tubes we use to wrap our fabric on, we don't even buy them. When we go to other plants, cut and sew contractors or whatever, we just get all their old cardboard tubes and reuse those. We don't use any plastic. We have some plastic buggies, but you know, that doesn't wind up as trash. So those are the kind of things that we try to do and kind of lead by example, being good environmental stewards. So a lot of what I'm hearing is that what you're hoping to prove to people is that you can have a quality product that's a responsible, sustainable product, and that maybe other people can do the same thing. Like we've replaced these things to solve problems that we no longer need to solve to a certain degree. Right. We have solutions with natural products and with processes that we can sincerely use if we just all agree to do it. Right, yeah. So one of the things I'd like to do to wrap things up is what would you like people to know about App Gear Company? What would you like people to think of when they think of your company? So number one, we're, we're small and we will get larger, but we're not trying to be North Face that we are innovators. You know, you've heard the backstory, but we didn't go out and find somebody that was an expert in this and that and bought a bunch of stuff. And then we, so we actually developed our stuff out of thin air and that's what we're gonna keep doing. So hopefully when people buy our stuff, they'll understand two things that Number one, we're always going to be trying to make it better. We're always going to be working on new products. We're not just a hoodie and a shirt company. We're, we're uh, working on some other products right now. And I could fall flat on my face, but I believe I can make other pieces of gear with natural fibers. That's a road I'm going to go down. And the last thing is that we're the kind of company that what we're doing is hiring young people. And people on your podcast can't see me, but I'm in my mid-50s. Our goal is to hire young people and teach them skills. We're not necessarily going to hire folks that just graduated from 
the best college. We want people that like the same things we like and, you know, and our, our customers. So if our, the people that buy our stuff, you know, we're just like them. I don't even know how to describe that. We're just like the people that we sell to. And that's really what I like people to know. We're, we're just like you. We get out and we do it. Unfortunately for me, I'm working too hard now, <laughs> but eventually some of my folks will be working hard and I'll be out playing. So that's the whole thing. Innovation and teaching people new skills because some of what we know is not taught anymore. So that's what we want to keep going. And so where do people go to find out more about your company, to buy products, to keep up with you? AppalachianGearCompany.com or on Instagram, AppGearCo, A-P-P-G-E-A-R-C-O. What about you? Can they find you or you want them to just leave you alone? No, they can find me. <laughs> I'm always at the festivals. Any, any Lee and his crew will be at the Bozeman Ice Fest. I won't be there, but anybody that's out in Montana in December, and then next year we're at the trail festivals. We're at uh, Damascus Trail Days in Virginia. We'll be at PCT Days out in Oregon in August, Roanoke Go Fest, and then whatever outdoor festivals. Uh, We used to do a few music festivals, but it's not really the right place for us because we just have a much better experience when we're at the outside activity kind of festivals. But yeah, we're easy to find. Right, and the way I always end this show, is I ask you if you have a final thought for the audience. Buy natural fibers. Look at your labels. I would say that's more important than anything. Look at your labels and educate yourself on what you're buying. You'll be surprised. And start looking for natural fiber alternatives. And if somebody tells you they've got an alpaca garment, make sure it's 100%. And if you make sure it's 100%, then by default, it's Appalachian Gear Company. (laughs) Because we're the only ones that do it. All right. Well, thanks for sitting in this shelter with me while we're avoiding the wind and the potential oncoming rain and recording this. They're all bundled up like they're going to leave. <laughs> I know. And now it's that part of the show where I ask you to go to our website, gogetoutside.com, and look for this episode 101 with John Gage, where you will find photographs and links to all of the things we talked about in today's show. And should you have a thought, should you have something to say that you'd like to share with us here, go ahead and do that a number of ways, one of which is email go at butcherbirdstudios.com or if you'd like to send us a text or leave us a voicemail, you can call 818-925-0106. And please head to your podcast purveyor of choice and subscribe to the show and if possible, rate and review it. And especially please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by me, your host, Jason Milligan. Additional help was provided by Griffin Davis, and as always, it has been brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show, runner, overseas volunteer, former CIA, and head of women's division of Go Ruck, we will be speaking with Emily McCarthy. Come back June 1st. Emily McCarthy. See you then.